Uh, I want to talk today about uh, my message today is called Loving God's House. Uh, loving God's House. Last week we talked about loving my body, and um, we didn't mean so much my physical body, but I used that metaphor a little bit, uh, that, that we want to love the body of Christ. Today I want to talk about loving God's house and, and how important it is that we love God's house and that, that, that we're excited about God's favorite house. This is, this is God's favorite house, and I was thinking about that. Um, you know, why is, the, why is the house of the Lord God's favorite house? And I'll try to answer a few questions as we go this morning, questions that maybe you've asked yourself or thought about or, or maybe just questions that are rattling around out there in culture. But I was thinking about, you know, why is this God's favorite house? And, and you know, the metaphor of marriage, again, it kind of dropped into my heart. hope I'm not wearying you with this metaphor. But uh, I'll tell you, my favorite house is wherever that woman is right there. That's my favorite house. And, uh, and, and all of us, uh, maybe as guys can relate, or some of us as guys can relate, but, but you know, uh, work is great, and we need vocational fulfillment. We don't want to hang around the house all day. That gets a little uh, wrong. It just doesn't seem right. Yeah? But when we've, when we've accomplished what it is we've set out to accomplish, when, when we've been able to do what, what has been, what's right in our heart to do with regard to provision, with regard to covering, with regard to uh, all of those things, then, um, uh, you know, my little car makes a beeline for the house where that woman is. And uh, she's, uh, you know, she's kind of the homing pigeon. I really don't want to stop somewhere else. Uh, and I'm, I'm in a, a little bit of a rush to get home, you know. Uh, that's where I, I want to get home for dinner. I want to get home and hug her. I want to get home and kiss her. Uh, I want to get home and befriend her. I want to get home and hear about her day. I want to get home and sit with her. I want to get home and gaze at her. I'm kind of a gazer. So it blesses me just to get home and gaze at her. So she is a sight for sore eyes. Um, and so uh, I get a lot of healing, uh, a lot of healing of the vision that happens as I get home. I'm like, oh, wow, praise the Lord, glory to God. Okay. And every married man probably feels that way about their wife. Uh, if you don't, come Thursday night, we'll talk about that. And beauty is really in the eye of the beholder, so some of you probably don't even think Joel's very attractive at all. Thank the Lord. Uh, but watch yourself. But the woman you're married to is extremely attractive. Come on, somebody. The bride that you chose, by the way, you chose her, so if you don't think she's attractive, uh, we'll talk about that Thursday night too, and you'll get a spanking. Because um, you chose her. Right? So, but nonetheless, this, this, you know, this bride that you've chosen captured your affection, captured your attention. Uh, something within you uh, 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 was fulfilled in choosing her. And, uh, you know, I tell guys, you know, I had several, I was kind of a dater. I was a bold dater. I don't know how that happened. I don't know. I was homely as can be, too. But I was kind of a bold dater, homely. That's an old-style word. It means kind of ugly. Um, but I was kind of, 
Jonathan's wagging his head back there. He's like, Pastor, what is up with you, bro? So, but I was kind of a bold dater. Like, you know, I don't know. I don't know why. So, but, you know, every girl before Joel just wasn't the right one. There just wasn't the right chemistry, the right DNA. And after just a short period of time, being like, you know, just the boredom would set in, right? Like, what in the world? This is terrible. But then I met Joel, and 35 years later, we're still not bored with each other. We're still in love with each other. And her house is my favorite house. Wherever she's at, wherever she's at, that's where I want to be. I think it's a picture. It's, it's why this right here is where the Holy Spirit wants to be. This is where the presence of the Lord wants to be. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there. I'll be there. I inhabit the praises of my people. When there's a plurality, when there's a gathering of people all at once, wherever the bride gathers, that's where the groom wants to be. He would love to just gaze at you. He would love you to flirt with them. He would love to just hang out with you. He'd love to spend time. And he's so, you know, he's so passionate about this that he's even set he set seasons or set times for us together. He said, I'd, I'd love it if you'd do this at least, you know, once a week. Get together corporately. Become a bride. Become a corporate expression. Get together. Hang out. Come and, 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 and meet with me and I'll meet with you. And that's why this is his favorite house is because, because you are the bride. of. I'm not the bride of Christ. No, no. I'm a part of the bride of Christ, but I am not the full expression of the bride of Christ. We together are the bride of Christ. We together are the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. We together are the betrothed ones. We together are those that are married to the Lord. Are, are you following the metaphor? Are you with me so far this morning? And so so together we come and and... What's, I mean, you know, remember, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says that we have different expressions. Some of you are the toe, some of the ear, some of the elbow. I mean, like, I can look at her toes for an hour or two. I'm, like, just dumbfounded over her toes. I'm like, oh, my word, those are just some beautiful toes I've ever seen in my life. You look at my toes, you could just barf right there. You could just be grossed out. You could be totally, totally like run out of the room. But I look at her toes, I'm like, what in the world? What was God thinking? How did he pour so much beauty into toes? This is ridiculous. How did he do this? Are you following me? And I got these big, my ears are starting to look more like Oral Roberts' ears by the day. By the day. Have you seen my fishing picture when I, when I was reeling in the fish? You see those? My ears are bigger than my hat. They are gigantic. I looked at that picture. I'm like, Lord, have mercy. They're growing by the moment. What is up with those ears? But I look at those ears. I look at her ears. I'm like, these are the most beautiful little delicate features. I can look at her ears for hours and just like, oh, oh. 
I'm dumbfounded over her ears. This is what he's trying to say in 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 12 and running all the way through verse 28, actually. And he's talking about we are the body, but we're different members and, and we have different expressions. And some are the foot and some are the toe and some are the ear and some are the eye. And you know what? He loves to just gaze at the differing expressions that come together at his favorite house. He loves to just, and you know what? He can do it for hours. And you're thinking, I've got to get to taco time before they run out of taco meat. And he's saying, please don't leave. Please, 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 please. I was just examining that small, dainty earlobe. Right? I mean, this, this, is, this is part of why he loves our gathering together. He loves our expression of worship. He loves that we came today to spend time with him. He is overjoyed and he is blown away. Remember what he says in the Ecclesiastics? Brian's been so good to bring it to us out of the Passion Translation. That, that one glance from us causes his heart to skip a beat. One glance from us causes his heart. You're thinking I'm in love with the Lord. Are you kidding me? Your love for him. You, you still have not even begun to touch on his love for you. He is freaked out over you. He's blown away over you. He's overjoyed over you. And when, when we get together like this, he is literally going crazy. Crazy, crazy. This is the mystery of this romance, this crazy mystery of this romance that we have with the Lord. Isn't that cool? So cool. And, and so I want, as I talk about God's favorite house a little bit today, and I just talk about how amazing that it is that we get to be uh, those who gather together. When, you know, some of us uh, we're, we're thinking, well, I don't know if church is really relevant anymore. I, I don't know if the house of the Lord, well, I am the temple of the Holy Spirit, so I really don't need to gather at a temple because I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. While we're going through all sorts of goofy mental gymnastics to potentially, to potentially deal with maybe uh, our lifestyle choices or our absence from the body, there's people elsewhere in the world that are working so hard to gather up in the congregations because they know that there's such value, there's such power, there's such life. People in Syria, people in Iran, people in China are, are working their fannies off to somehow get together and not be killed while they do it because they recognize the life of getting together as the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. They recognize how precious it is. How the fullness of Jesus is manifest in the midst of the gathering of the bride. I know one of the thoughts that, that I, I shouldn't say this maybe, but one of the thoughts that, that some, nobody at New Horizon, but, but some, uh, some of us think of is we think about, you know, uh, what's the minimum to get to heaven? You know, kind of what's the minimum, you know, fire insurance, what's the minimum, you know. Uh, so I think subconsciously there could be some of that that rattles around in the Christian community. Sure, not at New Horizon, but 
you know, what, but what, you know, what, what do I have to do? You know, what do I have to do to make sure that uh, if the big one hits today, the big storm, the big typhoon, the big hurricane, or the big heart attack, whatever it is, the big car wreck, whatever, you know, I'm okay. I got the fire insurance, I'm covered. I'm going to make it to heaven. But what we keep trying to bring forth here, what the environment here at New Horizon is, is how do I get heaven on earth? The question I'm always going to be talking to you about is not how do I get to heaven, but how do I get heaven on earth? And this is why some of the things that we talk about, I think they, they carry a relevance maybe beyond our understanding because this is what God wants for us. If God wanted to sweep you away to glory the moment you got saved, he could have done that so easy. I mean, just open the earth, your car would have fallen. It would have been just, I mean, there's so many, <laughs> there's so many ways to get you to heaven right away, right? We just, if we would have just held you longer uh, at the baptism service, right? Really, all we had to do was just, you know, count to 30 instead of 3, right? Whoops! Oh, man, that extra 27 seconds. Well, I guess God wanted you home quick. I mean, the, the, the goal is not to get you to glory. The goal is to get glory to you. This is why, this is why when, you know, Matthew 6, 9 through 11, when they're watching Jesus and they say, teach us how to pray... This is why he said that. Let's, we got to be praying this way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is Father's goal. Father's goal is to restore your life, to restore the earth, to restore all that pertains not only to you, but to his people. Heaven on earth. Amen? Heaven on earth. So I want you to hear my thoughts out of that context today. That this is God's heart for you. This is God's heart for you. See, he wants you to lift your heart too. Don't be thinking, what's the minimum I can do to make sure I'm saved? Be thinking, what would Father have me to do that I might walk in more of heaven on earth? Amen? So let's talk a little bit about uh, the relevance to the house of God. I want to go to, uh, I want to go specifically to, uh, to uh, Acts chapter 15. This sets the stage for something. We see a lot of cool things about the house of the Lord. In Matthew 21, we see the Lord, uh, the Lord is very passionate about his house. Matthew 21, 13, very passionate about his house. And uh, in Matthew twenty one thirteen, there he says, my house shall be called a house of, okay, so he says, so he's actually saying that I do have a house, my house is going to exist, and my house will be called a house of prayer. And he's actually referring to a physical gathering place that we could say metaphorically, okay, well, this house shall be called a house of prayer. But what he's referring to is the gathering of God's people in context. He's referring to the gathering of God's people, and he's saying, this is going to be predominant about my house. In other words, you've seen Moses' house. 
You've seen what's happened with the house of Moses. You've seen the devolving and the degradation that's happened from Shiloh till now with Moses' house. But I'm starting a brand new house. And my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, for all ethnos, for all the people. This is Matthew 21. So there's, there's some cool stuff where we see that, there is, that there's validity to a house like we're receiving from, partnering with, enjoying today. There's validity to it even out of the voice of the Lord. A couple other verses, and then we're going to go to what they tell you? Acts 15, right? Okay, so uh, a couple other verses real quick. Isaiah 56, 7. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain... And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. And this is where Jesus quoted from out of Matthew 21 when that happened. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Okay, now I want to jump over to Acts chapter 15 because something really cool happened in Acts chapter 15. What happened is originally on the day of Pentecost... 3,000 Jewish people who had been gathered for the feast days gave their lives to the Lord. They recognized Jesus as Yeshua, Messiah, the anointed one. So 3,000 people. You remember the Holy Spirit fell on those that had gathered, 120 who had stayed on to pray after the resurrection of Jesus. They watched him go up in the clouds, and then he said, don't leave Jerusalem with the message that you've received. Don't leave yet. But tarry until you receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. It was the promise out of Joel chapter 2. So they tarry, and they continue to just kind of wait on the Lord and pray. And the Lord chooses to pour out his Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which is exactly the same day that he met Moses on the top of Mount Sinai to give him the law. So as the Jewish people are celebrating... The, the giving of the law and the meeting with Moses, and by the way, coming into that, they said, you go up on the mountain, but we don't want anything to do with that. It's too fearful and dreadful for us. You go be our representative and then just come back and talk to us about it. So God's breaking that down and God's saying, from now on, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all people. There was a people that said, we don't want that. We don't want that power. But God's saying, now I'm going to pour out my spirit on all people, sons and daughters. They will prophesy. They will have dreams and visions. Yes? Remember? This happens on the day of Pentecost. So the Jewish people are celebrating the giving of the law on the top of Mount Sinai. And as they're celebrating it, the Holy Spirit comes with a rushing, mighty wind and fire. The same thing that happened on top of Mount Sinai. And now it comes upon those who've gathered in the room and they begin to prophesy the goodness of God. And they begin to speak in languages they haven't learned so that those that have come from 120 nations are suddenly hearing the glory of God in their own tongue. So this is happening, and then Peter stands up, and Peter says, these guys are not drunk. It was nine in the morning. These guys are not drunk like you're saying. They all thought they were drunk. But this is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is being poured out. So he preaches a good sermon, and 3,000 people give their lives to the Lord that day. 
It says in Acts chapter 2, 38, that their hearts were torn, and they said, what must we do? And he says, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus. And so they repent, and there's this conversion. Now, that begins the conversion of the Jewish people, but then we get over to Acts chapter 10, and Gentiles start getting saved. So this, this starts blowing them away. They start freaking out. Uh, these, gen, these non-Jewish people start getting born again, and they start getting baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they too start prophesying, having dreams and visions, and the Spirit is poured out upon them, and the first family to do so was the family of Cornelius. And so this goes on from there, and, and so... Now the disciples are trying to figure out what in the world is going on. How can non-Jewish people come into the kingdom of God like this? And they're, they're having these big, you know, gigantic arguments and throwing breadcrumbs at each other. I mean, this is pretty intense stuff, okay? And so they have kind of a council, and Acts chapter 15 gives us an overview of that council. And they're having this council, and they're like, you know, what should we do? And what should we do with them? And what should we tell them? And should they get circumcised? And what in the world? And so they're freaking out over this, and they're having a big talk. Okay? And so let's pick it up at verse 12. You okay? Whew! That was hard work. So the whole assembly became silent as he listened to Barnabas and Paul tell about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up, the brother of Jesus, and he said, Brothers, listen to me. Simon, Simon Peter, has described to us how God has first intervened to choose the people for his own name from the Gentiles. So now Peter was the one that was sent to Cornelius. Now the words of the prophets are in agreement with this, with what Peter just told us about Cornelius and those that are coming to the Lord. And this is what the words of the prophet said. Verse 16, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Tabernacle. The word tent there, I don't know what translation you've got, but what what translation are we showing up on the screen, by the way? Oh, tabernacle. Yes, that's good. All right, that's pretty good. Okay, so, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I must have the NIV. You must have the New American Standard. I don't know what you got up there. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. So it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from earliest times and read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So just give them a few instructions They probably know a little bit about the law of Moses already. Give them a few instructions and turn them loose to follow Jesus. Okay? Now, this is interesting, though. Where did he get this passage? Where did he get this passage? What prophet declared what he just said? He said that after this, I'm going to return. After what? After this, I'm going to return, and when I return, I'm going to rebuild not the house of Moses, not the tabernacle of Moses. I'm going to rebuild the tabernacle of David. Let's go over to Amos chapter 9. 
He picked that out of Amos chapter 9. So that was the Holy Spirit giving him insight in the midst of this discussion. It was all recorded for us. We are privy to this little council meeting. And he picked that passage out of Amos chapter 9. So he knew the word well enough, and the Holy Spirit spoke to him, encouraged him, and all at once he's bringing illumination in the middle of their argumentation meeting about what they should do and what God is up to. Let's go to Amos chapter 9 and verse 8. And Amos chapter 9, by the way, Lots of Amos is about the destruction of Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the Jewish people because they had rejected God and they were going to reject the Messiah. So chapter 9 picks up that theme, and here's what it says, starting at verse 8. Are you with me? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth Looks like I have a different translation than you, maybe. I don't know. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord, for I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among the nations as the grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. In other words, they were going to be dispersed. There was a great dispersion. Remember, from AD 66 to AD 70, Jerusalem was overrun by enemies. And there was a great dispersion of the Jewish people. They were judged. The temple was destroyed. And they they were dispersed across the world, across the globe. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day, in that day, I will restore David's fallen tent, tabernacle, shelter. I will repair its broken ruins and restore its ruins. I will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. For the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman, the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities, etc., etc. So he's giving, us, uh, he's giving us a glance way into the future. So we have, a near, we have a near perspective and then a far perspective. The near perspective is this. When God is all done, when God was all done with the final divorce of Israel, of the Jewish people, of which we have the seven woes of that divorce in Matthew 23. The seven woes in Matthew 23 are essentially Jesus declaring the declaration of judgment that will come upon Israel due to them divorcing God. And then Matthew 24 tells us what will happen. Tells us about the temple will be torn down. Tells us about the dispersion of the Jewish people, etc. And now what's happening is they're seeing all of that take place. And all at once they begin to understand, oh, The new order of all worship and the new order of what will be the house of the Lord is not going to be a reconstruction. God is not restoring or reconstructing the tabernacle of Moses. He's restoring, rebuilding the tabernacle of David. 
So that takes us into a study of the tabernacle of David, right? So we find, though, that, that the tabernacle of David existed in Zion, which me- means sunshine, brightness, and, it, and Zion was the highest hill or the highest mount, so to speak, in Jerusalem. And there David pitched the tent, and there David brought the ark. And when he brought the ark in, he brought the ark in with dancing. You remember that? With singing and with dancing. And he brings in the ark, and he sets up the ark, and he attends to the ark, not, beyond, not behind the, the, the holy of holy veil, uh, not, be, not behind. It wasn't hidden. But, none, but what he did instead is he set up he set up 24-7 praise and worship. Says 24-7, the sacrifice of worship was offered before the ark. And that tent, that tabernacle, that ark became a picture of us gathering together to a house. It became a picture of God calling us to a house, calling us as a people, calling us as a bride, and removing from us, removing from us, or actually accomplishing on our behalf the requirements of the law, that we could come in as those who just love him and have given their lives to him. That became the model. That became the model. And that tabernacle, now that tabernacle is what we are a picture of. This right here is not to be a picture of the mosaic tabernacle. This is not not to be a, a picture of the tabernacle that was set up in Shiloh. This is a picture where the Holy Spirit is right out in the open. He's not even behind a veil. He's right out in the open. He's right here for us to taste. He is here to manifest the presence of Jesus freely to us. All we have to do as we gather is we come with hearts that love him, and we come to offer the fruit of our lips, Hebrews says. The fruit of our lips. The sacrifice of the fruit of our lips. We gather together, and this is, this is that picture that they saw developing. Okay, we're not going to send all these Gentiles to the synagogue. We're not going to send them to Sabbath churches. We're, we're not going to send them to where they've got to be circumcised and they've got to fulfill all the laws of the Sabbath. We're going to do something brand new and fresh. God's doing something brand new and fresh. And he's raising up, not the Mosaic tabernacle, but in this time and in this day, as one fades off of the scene, he's raising up a brand new, but it is already been set in motion by the typology of David. This is why the Psalms are so important. This is why we, this is why so many songs have come out of the Psalms. This is why the writings of David are so relevant and rich and real. This is why we understand that we are the people of Zion. God is raising up Zion. This is a house of Zion. And we are a people of Zion. And we come together in a metaphoric picture of those who gathered at Zion with David. Isn't that cool? Isn't that fun? Woo! 
it's interesting, but you know, there's so many, so many cool blessings that come out of that, by the way, so many cool blessings, because he says that, that if we will do this, if we'll just come and freely partake of the Lord, if we'll come and just establish a place of worship, if we'll come and we'll just honor him with our hearts, then he will cause the rest of the nations to seek the Lord and to find him. What we do here together in this expression of Zion, this restored version of David's tabernacle, what we do here has the power to reach outside of these walls and to bring life to the whole region. And as a bunch of these assemblies of Zion... And there's several hundred in our region right here. As a bunch of these assemblies of Zion are doing this, there's a sanctifying power. There's a grace that's taking place in our communities, in our region, wherein the presence of the Lord is welcomed to show His grace and His kindness. So, Lord, we love this. We love this. We love this. Some of some practical benefits to the house of the Lord. And I want to read this out of Psalm 92, and then we'll, we'll finish with just some practical benefits of the house of the Lord. Psalm 92, 13, uh, actually verse 12, I love it. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. Now, that's interesting because I think that as we find ourselves planted in the Lord, I mean, there's all sorts of benefits tied up in that, but as we find ourselves planted in the Lord, that is, we put down roots, we draw our life from the house of the Lord, we, we're nourished out of the house of the Lord, it also affects our perspective on God and our perspective on life. And we end up saying, you know what, there's goodness in God. There's no wickedness in God. There's goodness in God. It's washing this relationship we have with the house of the Lord is washing our hearts with wisdom from above so that we see the goodness of God and we name him as such. God is good and there's no wickedness in him. Amen? Five practical benefits. Six. Six practical benefits that come from being planted in the house of the Lord. I'm going to go super fast, and we're going to close. I'm going to ask the band to come up. Number one, there's a commanded blessing. There's a commanded blessing. Psalm 133. When we're a part of the house of the Lord, when we're unified under authority, under the authority of the Lord, that there's a commanded blessing that goes beyond our understanding. I wish I, could, I wish I could go on and on about this because it goes beyond our understanding, but yet if we enter into it, we'll see that it transpires. Number two, there's safety in covering. We get to participate in the victories of apostolic leadership. I was sharing with somebody this week, just our joining with HIM and joining with Che on in 2010 caused so many skirmishes in the dark realm. So many things in the realm of the demonic to just be quenched 
quenched. They were almost automatically quenched the moment we joined in with that covering. There's something rich about joining with the house of Zion. Number three, God grants authority to those who are under authority. So as we come under authority and we just say, I want to be a part of this. I want to be fed here. I want to grow here. I want want my life source to be here. God grants authority to those who come under authority. Number three. Number four, there's soundness of doctrine that comes. In a healthy corporate setting, there's protection for soundness of doctrine. This is, this is Ephesians 4.11. You know, we come into a place where the gifts of, uh, of God are made manifest, where teaching is good, where, where two or three are gathered together. There's counsel. There's wisdom. This is part of, part of what God has for us. Number five, there's ministry expressions that we don't have. There's ministry expressions that we don't have. There's things that I partake of in the house of the Lord with the people of God that that I don't have. I am not the exhaustive version of Jesus. I actually need you in my life. I need Craig. I need Joe. I need Diane. What would I be without the prophetic? What would I be without, without the teaching gift? What would I be without how some others have impacted me? Sound doctrine. Fivefold ministry expressions. And number six, there's the accountability of coaching, correction, confrontation, encouragement that makes me a better person. Come on, stand with me this morning. Lord, we love your house. We love your house. We love that you've chosen to bring us together in the houses of Zion. When we come together, there's beauty in our gathering. There's beauty in our gathering. There's beauty in our expressions. There's the fullness of your mark, your DNA, your image in our midst. We rejoice in you, Lord. Heads bowed, eyes closed, just for a moment. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come up to the front. I want to shift gears just for a moment as we close. If you're here this morning and you're not knit to a local church, even as I read Psalm 12 uh, and 13 out of chapter 92, planted in the house of the Lord, if you're here this morning, you for whatever reason and, and there could be a hundred reasons but you just would acknowledge this morning heads bowed eyes closed that, that you want to be planted you want to be planted you want your roots to go down you want to be connected I, I want to invite you to begin to just respond right now let somebody pray with you let somebody encourage you Lord, we just overthrow. We overthrow bitterness, disappointment, discouragement, isolation. 
any influence that's kept us from from planting our hearts, our lives in a local expression of Zion. Coming together with God's people, becoming the beauty, becoming the joy, becoming that which you gaze upon. Lord, we just set it aside, and this morning we just say, we choose to be planted. We choose to be your people. Eyes closed, just another moment. I'm going to ask this morning, if you're here this morning, giving your life back to the Lord, if you've been distanced from Him, you've let some things come up in your walk, I want to invite you to begin to respond. He's so anxious to wrap his arms around you. He's offering mercy this morning and not judgment. If that's you this morning, you're giving your life back to the Lord, or maybe for the first time, just saying, I want to know the Lord. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. I I want the satisfaction of knowing Jesus. I I want the fullness of God in my life. I I want to know sins are forgiven. I want to know that I'm shame-free and guilt-free, that I'm on my way to a heaven-on-earth life. If that's you, just invite you to begin to respond as we close. We're going to close with a worship song this morning. Lord, we just declare your, your benediction of grace on your people richness of knowing you, the richness of Zion, the richness rejoicing in who you've made us to be. Let us be a bride that thrill over giving you a thrill. Let us be a bride that look forward to every corporate expression where we can come together fulfill your love. We thank you for it. We declare your grace over every heart and life. In Jesus' name, let's worship as we go this morning, church.